You are a faithful God. Your mercies are enduring. Your kindnesses are higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness broader than the breadth of the earth. Please, Lord, for the sake of your dear Son, whom you love, help us to carry out his mission. Help us, give us grace that we might be poured out, but poured out wisely according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The person that I have most on my heart tonight is the, the person who is thinking about becoming a missionary. Talking to you and talking to the pastors who may be involved in, in sending someone to the mission field. You need to understand something. It is all about sola scriptura. It is all about the power of the Holy Spirit. It is all about prayer. Everything that we are called to do, everything we're called to do is absolutely impossible. Every time we go out into the mission field, every time we preach, we are Ezekiel. Can these bones live? I will not doubt you, Lord, and say no. I will not presume upon you, Lord, and say yes, they most certainly will, but I will preach. I will preach. Whenever I'm talking about missions, I always, it's always, please do not trust in the arm of the flesh. Please give yourself wholly to the study of Scripture and the practice of Scripture and the proclamation of Scripture. Please, please learn to pray. Learn to tarry in the night watches. Learn to grab a hold of the horns of the altar and say, I will not let thee go. For Jericho was tightly shut up. No one came out and no one came in. Only God can make walls like that fall. And when I look around me today and I see so many silly men developing so many impotent and silly strategies of missions, I have to believe that all those strategies together are not as powerful as one saint praying, as one saint preaching. The more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you will see of the power of Almighty God. 
I want us to look, I'm going to go all over tonight, and I'm just going to answer certain things that I see to be great problems in missions. First of all, I want to talk about Sola Scriptura, and I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. Verse 16. And you say, why there? We all know that text. Well, have you read the book of James? It's one thing to know a text. It's another thing to obey it. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I've got several texts tonight. I can't do an exposition on all of them properly. I don't have the time or we'd be here for three days. This is what I want to point out. When someone comes to me and says that they believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures, this is what it means to me. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you're not going to take one more step. And that is that the scriptures are sufficient. They are sufficient for everything the Christian, everything the man of God, everything the church needs. They are sufficient. And if you won't take that next step, if you won't take that next step, all your words really don't matter. You're just speaking vanities in the air. And some of you need to do this. Some of you need to go home and really look at this text and really ask yourself this question. Is my life, my practice, personal life, in the church, in missions, in evangelism, is it all conform to the Scriptures? Can I find what I'm doing in the Scriptures without manipulating the text? Now I want us to go back to 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and the pillar and the support of the truth. Look at verse 14. How can you know that you are conducting yourself with regard to Christ's bride? How can you know that you are conducting yourself Properly, only through what is written, only through what is written. And there's something very important in this text. I want you to look at how the church is described, the household of God. If you came into my house and you started commanding my wife and my children, when you woke up, this is what you would hear from me. My house, my rules. My house, my rules. 
And that's what God is saying to us here. My house, not yours, Stuart. My house, my rules. And if you think I'm being a little bit harsh with this, then go on to the next description. The church of the living God. Now go back, even in English, and look up the word living and see how many times in the Old Testament it is placed before God. And when God says he's the living God, it is usually because he's speaking in a quite serious manner and is demanding a response that if he does not get, discipline will come to his people and judgment to the nations. When we're sitting around, almost every Tuesday, we have a staff-wide prayer meeting. And the men could testify to the fact that one of the first petitions that always comes out of my mouth is this. Lord, increase our fear of Thee. The more you know God, the more you will fear God. And the more you fear God. God, the more you will study his word so that you are absolutely sure that you are taking care of his bride in a way that he desires. Now I want you now, and some of you great expositors are almost going to die. I'm going to move around so much. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want all of you who are thinking about the ministry to look at this text. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's works. If any man's works which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. If you truly believe this text, you will not be able to sleep at night, even as a Christian, unless in your conscience you know by the grace of God you are studying God's Word as though your life depended on it, because it does, you are carrying out His ministry according to his word. How can we know if we're conducting ourselves properly? Only through his word. And that is why all these silly little boys with their silly little prophecies are doing so much damage to the church. Don't give me a man who mutters and whispers. If he speaks not according to this word, it's because he has no dawn. Those mutters and those whispers will give me no consolation, no strength in the night watch when I think about the fact that one day I will stand before God and my entire ministry will be judged. And it will be. Oh, how a man needs to fear God that that man might cling to his word, cling to his word. I want you to go jump over real quick to the book of Hebrews. I want to show you something particularly important for pastors and for missionaries, church planters. Hebrews 8.5. Listen to what it says. 
who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. God is saying, Moses, you better listen to me. I don't need your cleverness, your wisdom, your pragmatism, your inventions. I didn't ask you to draw up these plans with me. I did this apart from you in my own eternal counsel with my son. You make sure you follow the pattern precisely. Now let me ask you a question. What's more important in the economy of God? A stone, ta a, a, a cloth and fur tabernacle? Or his church that he is building? If God would warn a man about a building, how much more does God warn us about caring for his bride? Imagine a king. He has a bride that he loves with all his heart, all his heart. She's precious to him. Oh, he makes her eloquent, makes her beautiful, dresses her in the finest, purest, whitest linen. He loves her. He spends his day admiring her, but he has to go on a long, a long journey. So he calls you in as a steward. He calls you in as a steward. He grants you the privilege to care for his wife, and he carefully constructs a document before you. This is what I want you to do with my wife. This is what I want you to do with my wife. This is what I want you to do with my wife. But then what happens? The king goes on a long journey, and he stays gone for a while. And you notice that the people are becoming disloyal to the king. You notice that they're no longer really attracted to the queen. She's so, I don't know. Well, she's just not modern. She's not, she's not what the people want today. So you get a great idea. You strip her of her white linens. You paint her face and dress her like a prostitute. And you, you parade her before carnal men in order to draw them back into loyalty with the king. When the king returns, what will he do with you? He will kill you. And that's exactly what many pastors are doing today. That's exactly what many church planters are doing today. They're dressing up the church so that she will be pleasing not to godly folk, but to carnal folk in hopes of bringing them back into the kingdom. The king never gave you such a decree. Never. She belongs to him. She is precious to him. And we are to be jealous for her to the point of fighting. Jealous for her. Sola Scriptura is more than a doctrine. It is the very thing that may or may not save your life. Depending on how you deal with it, how you respond to it. My greatest prayer for us with missions is that we learn to fear the Lord. 
And you say, but Brother Paul, you, all you're doing is talking about church precisely. That's my, what my point is. Missions is this. One biblical church sending out elder qualified men to plant another biblical church. And those elders that send those men out do so with fear and trembling. And the one who goes out deals with the bride of Christ with fear and trembling. If just this one thing was believed in seminaries and in missiology departments, it would transform everything. Everything. Now, I want to switch gears a bit. We all want to go to the mission field. We all want to go to the mission field. We all talk about having an influence upon the world. But let me ask you a question. What part of everything you are should be exported? And what part of everything you are should be quarantined? Let's ask ourselves some questions. Your doctrine. Is your doctrine worth exporting or should it be quarantined? I want you to know you can be a cup of blessing, you can be a cup of hemlock. By and large, in the recent decades, our doctrine has been like a cup of hemlock to the nations. Here's some questions for you. Have you been diligent to present yourself approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth? Have you? Do you look at doctrine this way? Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure invitations to a very large conference on exposition. That's not what it says. Look at this. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you see this? Well, I don't want any of that doctrine stuff. Well, then you, you have to go to hell. What we believe will determine our eternal destiny, the doctrine, the teaching that we hold to. Why do we study doctrine? Our life depends upon it. Why as ministers should we devote ourselves to doctrine? The life of those who hear us depend upon it. Depend upon it. Let's go on. Your personal godliness, should it be exported or quarantined? Before you head off to the mission field to be light, are you light? Not many conferences on personal godliness, holiness. Are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? Now just where you're seated right now, ask yourself that question. Are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? If you answer yes, then just in your own mind, just repeat the regiment that you have. What is your regiment? What do you do every day in order to discipline yourself in godliness. You know, there's a reason why Paul uses the Olympic athlete. 
that, that someone from the time they're five years old until the time they would compete in the games, maybe when they're a mature man or woman at 20, 22, their entire life, the way they eat, their social relationships, everything is geared towards one thing, winning a gold medal that will perish and for the most part isn't gold. And we are called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Give me a holy man any day over an academic who's not holy. Now, I, I would prefer to have both. But without holiness, no. Are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? Here's another one. 2 Corinthians 7.1, are you cleansing yourself from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord? I had the privilege of sitting under, many times, an old Methodist preacher by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, going up, asking questions. And one time, he sent me a track, and it said this, others can, but you cannot. And what the track was basically saying is that, yes, within Christianity, there are certain liberties that others can take. But those things can be very, very dangerous. Do you want to be used of God? Others can, you cannot. There are certain things you cannot do if you want God's anointing resting upon you. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not grieving the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a sharp instrument, there are things others can do that you cannot. And you say, well, that's rough. It's the same way with the Olympian. It's the same way with the athlete. The reason why they're there, why? Because others can do things that they cannot because of their devotion to this one thing. Those of you who are called to preach, should you devote yourself to, to learning Greek and Hebrew and, and all church history and systematic theology and all these things? Absolutely! But none of it will be, be mattering anything if you're not guarding your heart, guarding your eyes, separating yourself from the world, and being a holy instrument unto God. Another question, are you progressing in sanctification without which no one will see the Lord? These are all important questions. You see, there was a time when missionaries came as candidates, and these were the questions that they were given. Your doctrine and appreciation of the local church, should it be exported or quarantined? Here's a question. Are you a faithful and committed member of a specific local church that actually has a name? Boy, you better. Because if you're not, then don't tell me you go to church because I'm going to ask you the name and the pastor's name and everybody's name and you're going to look like a fool. Have you spent a great deal of time studying the scriptures to determine what a biblical church looks like, the nature and authority of a local church. Have you studied the nature and authority of an elder and the elder's qualifications, deacons and a deacon's qualification, the type of preaching that should be in a biblical church, the type of prayer meetings 
that should be in a biblical church? Have you studied government, ordinances, ordination, discipline, and so many other things? You say, no, 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 I haven't done that. Then please do not go to the mission field. Because missions is about planting biblical churches. Here's another question. Will you go out with the latest church growth fads to build a church that is tailor-made to a culture, or will you go out in absolute dependence upon what is written, the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit? Those are questions that we need to ask ourselves. Now, I want us to talk a bit about defining terms. This is very important. I would love to sit with you just sit with you and go through each one of the great commissions that are found in the Synoptic Gospels, in John, in Acts, but we don't have time. So I'm going to have to just say a few things, give you a brief statement, and then a brief introduction, then a brief definition, and then explain a few things. First of all, the Great Commission is primarily a theological, doctrinal, and didactic endeavor. Didactic means teaching. Now, you say, well, it's more than that. I would agree. But it's not less than that. It's not less than that. If I take you through the book of Acts, what are you going to see? Preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching. It is more than that, but it's not less than that. Now, I'm going to give you just a definition that I tried to put together for a working definition. It is going into all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching or heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling upon men to repent and believe, and instructing men in the full counsel of God, His character, works, will, promises, that they may render true devotion to God through Jesus Christ as individuals and as a local assembly. If I hear some young guy tell me one more time, it's all about the gospel. And I realize he's just saying that because he's wanting to communicate something else. It's all about the gospel and it's not about anything else in the scriptures. I'm so tired of hearing beautiful truths turned into cliches. Oh, it's all about the gospel. I don't have to worry about anything else. It's all about the gospel. I love the gospel. I breathe the gospel. I dream the gospel. I sleep the gospel. And one day, hopefully, I'll die for the gospel. But it's all about the entire book. It's all about the full counsel of God because you can't understand the gospel apart from the rest. It's teaching the Bible. Some of you have such wrong ideas about what's really going on out there on the mission field. There will be countless missionaries that will hear what I'm preaching and you know who you are and you will scoff at it. You will say I'm just a Bible-thumping fundamentalist who doesn't understand all the cultural nuances that you understand that makes you so effective. Well, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Let's go to the book of Acts. It's on my side. Let's go to the epistles. They're on my side. Let's go to the gospels. They're on my side. Now, Listen to me very carefully, especially, 
especially you, you young men and women who are thinking about the mission field. The Great Commission is a doctrinal endeavor to dumb down our doctrine, to put doctrine aside so that we can carry out a doctrinal endeavor is intellectual and spiritual suicide. But that's exactly what's been done for years in evangelicalism. Let's build all our unity around what? Missions. You can't do that. You cannot do that. You build your unity around the truth of God's Word. And then you go out and do missions. Now I'm going to read to you something. It's lengthy, but it's important. It's from a marvelous book called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic by Walter Chantry. And I want you to listen. Listen very, very carefully. Those who believe in God's Word have been grasping at the same superficial solutions that liberalism has adopted. Relevance, respectability, whether intellectual or social, and especially unity have become the aims of God's people with the hope that these will revitalize a weakened church. If only all Bible-believing people join together, the world will set up and listen, thinks the church. Let's merge our mission boards to pool our funds and our personnel. Let's join giant evangelistic projects. If every evangelical joins in a common organization, we can have greater depth of evangelism. Thus, organizational unity becomes the aim of gospel churches. Having accepted the theory that unity is all important for world evangelism, both the church and the individual must lower their estimate of the value of truth. In a large congress on evangelism, we could not insist on a truth of God's word that would offend any brother evangelical. Thus, we must find the calmest, the lowest common denominator to which all born-again Christians hold. The rest of the Bible will be labeled unessential for missions. After all, unity is more essential than doctrinal preciseness. It is just for this reason that mission societies have been unwilling carefully to examine the root problem in preaching. Mission boards are hesitant to answer the question, what is the gospel? Thoroughly to answer that would condemn what many of their own missionaries preach. It would destroy the mission society, which is a federation of churches who have differing answers to that question. To adopt the position of one church would be to lose the support of five others. The whole system built on unity and generality would crumble. The local church may not get too specific about truth either. It may affect its harmony with the denomination or association. To define the gospel carefully will bring conflict with the organizations working with teenagers. It will prompt irritating problems with mission boards and embarrassing disagreement with missionaries supported for years. It may condemn the whole Sunday school program. Giving too much attention to the content of the gospel will mean friction with other evangelicals and unity is the key to success. Brothers, this could not be more true. This could not be more true and more necessary for our time. I want the entire world to hear the gospel in my generation. I want every person on this planet to be saved. I want, 
I want this to work more than anything else. But it will not work through pragmatism, and some of you need to hear this, through politics. We need men who won't just talk about the truth, but will say, I'm going to live it, and my church is going to live it, and we're going to actually do what this book says. Because until then, you're just a little boy playing Reformation. Now, who or what is the epicenter of the Great Commission? I mean, who's the, who's the big guy? Who is the go-to? I mean, who is, I mean, you talk about world missions and the Great Commission, who is that one outstanding entity? Well, here it is. It's the local church. It's the local church. Now, before you draw any wrong conclusions, I am not against churches working together in cooperation, not at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I am not against other groups helping, aiding the church, but do not let the tail wag the dog. God has one, one entity, the church. Every, uh, his bride, and everybody else exists to serve her. Everybody. Now, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus appointed 12 to be with him and to go out. And it is through this 12 that he laid the foundation for the church, Ephesians 2.20. And it is through these 12 and their associates that he also gave us the only inspired, infallible, inerrant revelation of his will. But there's something very, very interesting that I, I don't have time to go through the whole text. There's something very interesting in the book of Acts. As each page is turned on the book of Acts, and years pass by, we begin to see something. At first we see Apostles, 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 apostles. Then we see apostles, elders, apostles, apostles, elders, elders, elders. Now, I believe with the greatest conviction that there are no apostles today. No, not in any shape, form, or fashion. There are no people receiving divine inspiration. So what does that leave us with? The church and elders. I have spent the last two years studying quite a bit about the church. Do you know why elders have those qualifications? Why they must have those qualifications? Because they are so extremely important in everything that has to do with the church and everything that has to do with the Great Commission. I was so confused about what to preach on here. Why? Because I'm kind of a guy that says, well, if I'm going to preach on this, but yeah, they won't understand this unless they understand this, but they won't understand this unless they understand this. So I didn't know what to preach on because in order to plant a biblical church, 
You must have a biblical church. And in order to have a biblical church, you must have biblical elders. Biblical elders. You see, the church is the epicenter of everything. Everything. Now, I want us to look. Look for just a moment at Acts chapter 15. One through four, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had a great discussion and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported. Now here's an apostle reporting, and he's reporting to a church about what God had done. Now look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Look at verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Here's James, an elder in the church of Jerusalem, and he's telling the apostles, listen to me. We go on. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called uh, Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Do you see what's going on? Where are all the decisions being made? Who's determining what's going to happen in the Great Commission? The church. The elders. Now I know I will be anathematized for this. So be it. I mean I died. What more can you do to me? I love missions. And I, I really respect many missiologists and mission professors. But if I had my way, the seminary would have a department of ecclesiology and missions would go underneath that. And if you say to me, which has already been said to me, if you do that, you'll lose missions in ecclesiology. And I say, you mean the way we've lost ecclesiology and missions? Do you see that, brethren? A lot of things being taught in missiology are very, very good, but we've got to bring it back under the local church. Look at Acts 13, just for a moment. Verse 1 through 4. Well, let's just go to verse 2. I'm running out of time. <laughs> 
While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Who did this? The church in Antioch. Now I want you to realize something. This is a historic moment in world missions. I mean a historic moment. And the Holy Spirit who initiates this and directs it, does it in the context of what? A local church. And then what else do we see? We see these men, the great apostle Paul, being approved of whom? A local church. And then as has already been pointed out, if you go to Acts 14, 26 and 27, look what happens after Paul and Barnabas return from their missionary journey. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the, to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church, the church together, that's what a church is, and it's assembly, assembly of believers. They gathered together that local church. They began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They were not, as one brother pointed out the other day, they were not sitting at Starbucks drinking a latte and talking about, hey, how'd things go? It was a report. It was the asking of questions. It was a debriefing. It was an extremely serious matter. And the Apostle Paul himself has to give a report. I want to read something here. The purpose in making all these statements is not to deny the viability of churches working together in cooperation or through entities that assist in their cooperation. Our purpose is to show that the responsibility of the Great Commission belongs to each local assembly or congregation and its elders and they cannot, except in disobedience, neglect their duty. Now, quickly I want us to run over for just a second to 2 Timothy. This is an extremely important text. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In the 1970s, the multiplication of disciples became all the rage in the church. And that's wonderful. I applaud that and I don't want to take anything away from that. Where one more mature believer disciples another, that's fine. But I believe the reason why it became such a rage is because the pulpit, because of liberalism, had become so weak. The people were not being fed from the pulpit, and so they needed this addition. Now again, I am all for members discipling members and things such as that. Please don't get me wrong. But that's not what this text is teaching. This text is talking about elder qualified men, spiritual men, praying for and investing their lives into other men who are aspiring to the office of overseer 
or some office pouring their lives into them that they might become elder qualified and be useful in the ministry. It is about, listen to me, I believe this with all my heart. Pastors are the highest office. They are the most important person. Now, but when I say that, realize that I'm saying this. Pastoring is more than expository preaching. It is not less than expository preaching. But it is more. It's shepherding, pastoring, guarding, visiting hospitals. It's taking care of the flock. But there's one part of pastoring that has been totally eliminated from the vocabulary of most pastors or elders. And what is it? The training of men. The training of men. Now, let me say something else. I love, um, I love what I hear from a lot of, a lot of the seminaries. There's, um, I so appreciate that ministry. I think, you know, I want young men and I... I, I want people to know Greek and Hebrew, and I, I want them to have that experience of being challenged academically and to learn to think in a non-contradictory manner with systematic theolo theology and systematic ethics. I most definitely want them studying hermeneutics and most definitely church history. I really do. But pastor, you don't turn your sons in the ministry over to a seminary. My son is 17. He's going to be going to college. Well, he's already finished a year and a half at Masters, but from home, and sooner or later, he's going to, he's going to go probably there. When he goes there, they will always be his teachers. I'm his father. I'm going to be calling him probably almost every night. When I go there to visit out to California, I'm going to be talking to his teachers. I'm going to be finding out what he's studying. Why? He is my son. He's their student. He's my son. But here's what happens. A young man feels called into the ministry, and immediately the pastor relinquishes hold on him and sends him off somewhere. And many times doesn't even know if he's gone to a biblical church. Doesn't know what he's being taught. And then after three years sometimes of not even hardly being in a church... Go to some organization. All of that is, it's, it's so wrong, there's nowhere to even, it's wrong on every level. If you're a pastor, I want you to know this. This is my view of seminaries, and please, again, I have the greatest respect for seminaries. And I think most seminary professors, at least a lot of them, would agree with me here. A seminary is the place where you not necessarily go to be prepared. A seminary is where you go to learn all the tools you need to spend the rest of your life preparing. And a seminary was never called by God to be so much an incubator and a guardian of young preachers. That is the church's job. That is the pastor's job. 
and you don't let go of that boy. There used to be a thing in Baptist life that doesn't really exist anymore. It was called watch care. If a young man went to seminary far away from his church, that pastor of that church went on a big investigation to find a biblical church and develop a relationship with those elders at that church. And that young man was put under watch care in the sense that those other elders watched over that young man. The church is the incubator. The church is the nurturer. The church is the judge. The church is the ordainer. The church is the sender. The church is the support. And the church can even be the discipliner of the missionary. The church. Let's go on. What is a missionary? You know, you put, you put 10 mission experts in a room and ask them all what a missionary is, and you live will get 10 different answers. I remember when I was in systematic theology. I was sitting there one day, I was in class, and the professor walked in and he goes, now, students, all I want you to do is just give me attributes of God, divine attributes, I'm going to write them on the board. So people sitting there and they're giving him divine attributes of God. There was holiness, righteousness, this, that, omnipotence. And I was kind of sitting there and just thinking about something just didn't seem right. And so after a while, he put up about 15 or 20 attributes and he goes, Washer, you're being pretty quiet. I said, yes, sir. He said, what, what's, what's going on? I said, well, we've said nothing about God. Nothing. And he said, he knew, he got a twinkle in his eye. He goes, what do you mean we've said nothing about God? I said, we've said nothing about God, sir. Because that word holiness there, there's about 25 students, they could have 25 different definitions of what holiness is. We haven't said anything about God until we define every one of those terms biblically. And that's the way it is. You know, everyone talks about the love of God, no one wants the biblical definition. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. We have the word pastor in the Old Testament, shepherd in the New Testament. We have that word. And yet, if you looked at evangelicalism, and even those who consider themselves reformed, you would have almost an endless variety of people doing completely different things and yet calling themselves pastor. The word missionary is not in the Bible. Now, do you see the difficulty? How we define that term, a lot's going to depend on that. And I want to give you three reasons why we need to be specific. First of all, we cannot have confidence in any ministry unless it is specifically, specifically prescribed by the Scriptures. No matter how noble that ministry may be, if it's not prescribed by the Scriptures, we're in trouble. Secondly, we need to recognize throughout biblical history and church history, if there is one thing that God's people as a whole and individuals are prone to do, 
It is this. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the absence of inspired, inerrant, infallible authority, man will invent. Finally, why should we define what a missionary is? I want to read this, something I wrote down so that I would be very clear. The state of modern missions proves that our great need is to return to the scriptures. Contemporary mission work is afloat in a labyrinth of contradictory opinions regarding the nature of the Great Commission, the definition and duty of a missionary, and the methods or strategies that are employed. Never in the history of the church have there been so many widely divergent views and such radically incompatible strategies, such confusion is irrefutable evidence that we are once again guilty of doing what is right in our own eyes. What is a missionary? The word missionary comes from the Latin noun missionarius and the Latin verb mitera. Missionarius was probably first used in the 16th century by the Jesuit priests who were sent out to proselytize in foreign lands and to thwart the growth of the Reformation and the church. Here's something that you need to understand. The verb mitera is the Latin translation of the Greek verb apostello. The word missionarius is the Latin translation of the Greek noun apostolos or apostle. So every time you call someone a missionary, you're calling them an apostle. Now again, I want to affirm, I want to be very, very clear on this, the office of apostle has ceased. But I just want you to understand the meaning of the term. Now. Most of the time when we think of the word apostolos, we think of it in Greco-Roman terms. You know, how was it used in the Greek world, in the Roman world? And it's very, very accurate. It refers to someone who's been sent out with the authority of the sender. But I want to read you something from one of my favorite people on the planet, Sam Waldron, in his book, To Be Continued. And he's going to quote uh, Ritterbos here. And it's, it's an excellent, excellent thing to hear. An apostle is a sent one. Both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for apostle is derived from the verb that means to send. Among the Jews, however, shaliach, or sent one, had attained a very specific meaning. Ritterbos notes, recent research has shown that the formal structure of the apostolate is derived from the Jewish legal system in which a person may be given the legal power to represent another. The one who has such power of attorney is called shaliach, apostle. The uniqueness of this relationship is pregnantly expressed by the notion, and this comes from many rabbinic sources, that the shaliach of a man, the apostle of a man, is as the man himself. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word apostle also possesses a similar technical meaning. Jesus Christ was his father's apostle, Hebrews 3, 1 through 2. 
Thus what Jesus said, his father said. John 14, 6 through 10. In a similar way, the 12 are his apostles. John 20, 21. To receive Christ's apostle is to receive him. Matthew 10, 40. John 13, 20. Therefore, an apostle was one's legal representative having power of attorney. Now, when the word is used in its strict and most proper sense, it refers to the 12 to Matthias, and then to the Apostle Paul. This ministry has ceased. Let me put it this way. It has ceased. Get that in your head. This is very, very important. Especially today. It's ceased. Now, the Apostle's teaching laid the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, which can only be laid once, no man outside the sphere of the original apostles meets the requirements of a genuine apostle as set forth in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And the apostle Paul saw himself as the last to be called, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. You say, well, why bring all this up? Well, you call them missionaries. So what does it mean? Now I want you to look at something else. In a broader sense... The term apostle is also used in the New Testament to describe those men who were sent out by the churches as their official representatives, messengers, envoys, emissaries, delegates, or laborers for the expansion and edification of the churches on the mission field. They are called, for example, in the, in the uh, New American Standard Bible, messengers of the churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, Paul refers to certain brethren as messengers, apostoloi, of the churches who had been sent out under the authority of the churches to collect the offering from the, for the saints in Jerusalem. In Philippians 2.25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as the messenger, apostolos, of the church in Philippi who was sent by the church to minister to Paul's needs. Now, let me give you, I'm going to read you these two definitions. The apostles of Christ, the twelve. The apostles of Christ were appointed and sent out under the direct authority of Christ himself to take the inspired revelation that was given to them to the ends of the earth. The messengers of the churches were appointed and sent out under the authority of a local church or a collection of churches to carry out a specific task delegated by the church. In the context of the Great Commission, it would denote one who is sent out by the church to take the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints to the ends of the earth. Now, are you starting to see that using the terminology missionary without it directly involving the local assembly is just not biblical because that's my point that's my point that's my point I'm running out of time I'm not even gonna get through half of my notes but that's my point now I want to give you just three things here should we use the term apostle 
or should we say messengers of the churches or apostles of the churches? We should use messengers. Messengers of the churches, emissaries of the churches. Why? The word apostle is so identified with the twelve and their unique ministry that our use of the term would result in misunderstanding and the need to constantly explain ourselves. Also, it is not necessary because the word apostolos not only referred to that type of ministry, but to a delegate, an envoy, an emissary. We should, secondly, we should take the greatest precaution with our use of the term apostle so as not to affirm in any way the claims of the many false apostles who are wrecking havoc on the contemporary church. And if something isn't done, they're going to be wrecking even more havoc. I will continue to use the word missionary, but I have to admit, I prefer messenger or emissary of the church. Why? Because it communicates this biblical relationship between a local assembly of believers and the man that has been nurtured, trained, ordained, and sent out by them. That's why. Now, a closer look. Take, let's go to 2 Corinthians for a moment. I'm about ready to think, if I can cram all of you in my hotel room tonight at about midnight, we'll just go through the rest of this until my plane leaves. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and you're going to find something very important in verse 16. If you look in verse 23, well, let's look in verse 23 first. Well, let's read the whole thing. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers, and the word there is apostolos, apostoloi. They are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, I want you to look at something that's very important. First, look at verse 16, and you will find an inward call of God that the Apostle Paul refers to as an earnestness. He says, but thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Now think about this, because in a moment we're going to talk about the Greek verb dokimazo, which is also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with regard to elders and deacons. He has an earnestness in his heart. He's heard about Corinth. He's heard about the need in Jerusalem. He's heard about these things. And God, God, 
has put an earnestness in this man's heart. If any man aspires to the work of an overseer. You see, there's a desire in his heart. There is a desire. Look at verse 17. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone out to you of his own accord. The church made an appeal. There's a need here. God put an earnestness in Titus' heart, and he voluntarily accepted the challenge. They did not have to manipulate him or force him. They would have had to hold him back. All right? Now, look at verse 18. He's going to talk about another man who is unnamed, but he's given a title that all of us should long for. Verse 18, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Look at this man. I mean, not just in his local assembly, but in sister assemblies, in sister churches. This man's fame is he knows the gospel. He loves the gospel. He can communicate the gospel. This guy is all about the gospel. That's the kind of man we need to send to the field. All about the gospel. Now look at verse 22. We have sent with them our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. He had an earnestness put in his heart by God, and these men were tested. Dokimaso. That word is used with regard to deacons, but the adverb also means that the elders also were tested. Talk about not testing missionaries. Most people don't even test elders today. They listen to a preaching tape and then invite him to come be their pastor. How are you going to determine if this man has the characteristics of an elder according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9? You see, let me give you an example. I was in, I was in Mia Flores in, in Lima, Peru, preaching doing things at night one night when the biggest bomb in the history of that war blew up about a block and a half away 2,000 pounds of TNT we were all running for our lives buildings are falling on our head there's blood everywhere and I thought to myself I need to run I need to run I need to run I need to get to those people get to those people they're gonna die they're gonna die they're gonna die I get there and I'm running full speed and I slip on the blood that's everywhere I grab somebody and I haul them out I go in and grab somebody I haul them out I could do that but I couldn't fix them. I was never trained as a doctor. Held a man dying in my arms years before who'd been shot six times through the heart. I grabbed a towel, pulled him against me, and we hit the floor. I could do my best, but I wasn't a doctor. Most guys who are sent to the mission field, they're really not missionaries. They've got to be able to open this book and not just say, I want to do something. I want to do something. They've got to actually be able to do something. Open their mouth and proclaim the word of God. And order the church according to the laws of our God. Not suggestions, laws. I had a young man come to me one time. Let me finish the story or you're going to think I'm very cruel. He came, he calls me up on the phone. He says, I want to come to Peru. I just want to come to Peru. 
I said, all right. He says, I want to come to Peru. I just want to give my life away. I just want to give my life away. I said, how are you in your study of scripture? Well, you know, that's kind of a weak spot with me. I really struggle. Sometimes I don't even read my Bible. I'm just, but I just want to give my life away. How are you in intercessory prayer? In the night watch? Well, you know, I really struggle in that. Okay. Um, evangelism, street evangelism, street preaching. Well, look, Paul, look, look, Mr. Washer, I just, I just want to give my life away. I said, young man, there's nobody here in Peru who needs your life. They need God and someone who can open up his mouth and tell them about God. One of the greatest missionaries alive today is a friend of the elders of my church, Anthony, friends of myself. He, he's one of the most, never met a man like him. He's been beat up more times. <laughs> he told his wife a while back, honey, you're going to have to stop getting me in fights that my body can't win anymore. He's out in a place I can't even mention. And this is what he always says. If one more floppy top teenager with really cool hiking shoes and a keen backpack comes walking through my mountain range one more time, dropping tracks out of his backpack and riding home in code so that all the people go ooh and ah, he says, I think I'm going to throw up. We need men who know their God. Men who know the Word of God. Men who love the church. Not some little cloud of thing called the church. Not something you can't see and touch. Men who love the church and are willing to die for the church. My friend David Zadok, who is here from Hagefen, from, from Tel Aviv, and his ministry's out there. I wish you'd go visit it. I was talking to him today, uh, yesterday about shaliach, ha-shaliach. And I said, David, is it, am I right on this in Hebrew? He said, yes, you are. He said, but, you know, about one sent out with the authority of another. And then he said this to me. He said, you know, the Israeli government still uses that term. I said, really, how? The shaliach are a group of men who are sent out of Israel to go around the world to gather Jews and call them back to the promised land. It's a Hebrew word for apostle, messenger, and that's what we're called to do. And I can tell you this, I can tell you this. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe in the power of the word of God, if you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and intercessory prayer, you can go into the deepest hell hole in the world and you can have the confidence that if you will stand there and preach long enough, strong enough, and persevere everything they throw at you, somebody's coming out of there saved. Somebody's coming out of there saved. And that's what missions is about. Good day.